Welcome to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We explore topics that are shaping healthcare with specialists who are leading innovative change. Physicians are trained to deal with medical emergencies, but COVID-19 thrust hospitals and our healthcare systems in Phoenix and around the world into crisis mode for nearly a year. Phoenix was a COVID hotspot, as were other cities like New York and Seattle. There have been more than 30 million cases of COVID and more than half a million deaths in the United States, nearly 17,000 of those who were Arizonans. This was a tremendous test of crisis leadership as medical teams work to understand the disease, identify treatment protocols, and share valuable information. Dr. Marilyn Glassberg shares insights from her experience leading frontline teams and how a single tweet led to new predictive models for COVID lungs. I'm Dr. Johnny Lifshitz. I'm Dr. Katie Bright. We are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have you with us. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care. Joining us today is Dr. Marilyn Glassberg. Dr. Glassberg is the inaugural chief of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. She also serves as the Senior Director of Clinical Research for Strategy and Growth in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and Banner University Medical Center. Dr. Glassberg, hospitals clearly are dealing with crises every day. They've established plans. They have you know, emergency operation plans for public health disasters. Clearly, COVID-19 has been very different. I'd like to hear your take on this, what makes it so different, but also you sort of epitomize innovation. So how your teams approach developing, testing, evaluating, and even new treatment protocols for COVID-19. I, I would uh, second the challenges that we faced from the get-go, from the very first patient that rolled in in March of 2020. And it took a few patients for us. Remember, we had the benefit of the East Coast. We had some benefit from Seattle, right? That we had colleagues we were talking to. The pulmonary community was networked very early on with weekly meetings. And a lot of the information was coming from the New York hospitals. So we would listen to this, see these patients start rolling in and say, well, Arizona's gonna get protected. We're, we're not gonna see this. This is gonna be an East Coast and a little bit in Seattle. It'll be a little bit of their phenomenon, but we'll be fine. And we kept saying that, except we weren't. And the numbers just kept escalating. And we kept saying, well, how bad can it get? It can't get as bad as what happened in New York. There's no way. It just, it can't be. And that's not what happened. It got worse than New York. You know, the bars were open. The weekend basketball games were going on. The kids were going back. The church meetings and synagogue meetings were happening. And people were getting you know, the numbers were just escalating so rapidly that we very quickly had to figure things out. And innovation was the key. That's right. We had to think out of the box fast. We didn't want to end up like New York with patients in all of the, you know, convention centers and, and, and stacked in hallways. We were trying to figure that out. And the first thing we went at was as the number of intensive care patients increased. 
right? That the ones that needed ventilators increased. The first concern was we're gonna run out of ventilator parts. We're gonna run out of ventilators. And a lot of this was communication between the multiple medical centers. So I had a friend in Chicago, a colleague who was using helmet ventilators. We found out that they were being made in Texas in a small company. We started to work with Banner to organize to get helmets. It took several months to get these kind of ventilators that fit on patients' heads, but we got a hundred of them. But we got it much later in the game. Like we didn't get those until the second surge. So here we are at the first surge, thinking we're planning for the first surge when actually we're planning for the second. The first is hitting us pretty badly. And so we worked, a lot of things happened. We got on Slack. We found out that the local high schools had all these cool programs for 3D printing parts. Um, one of my colleagues worked together with that high school to make parts for our ventilators. And pretty soon we had parts for ventilators. So we knew in New York that we're putting more than one patient on a vent we were able to do that too, if we had to. So then we scaled up. We knew the people that we had to save were the worst ones, right? We had to go for them because the other ones, and remember, we didn't understand the spectrum of the disease at all. The patients are just rolling in. They're rolling in. They're sick. They're really sick. Some aren't as sick as others. Some of them only have GI effects. They have diarrhea, but most of them had pulmonary stuff in their lungs. So then you started to say, oh, well, okay, how are we gonna predict how those patients are gonna do? So we started to work. The big advantage of the banner system and, and having UA hooked to banner is the number of patients we can access, the number of materials. So very early on, one of the things I did that I think was particularly innovative was I wrote a global IRB to an institutional review board protocol to allow for any, any study I wanted to do, because I'm a translational clinical scientist at heart, right? I'm not this big intensive care clinician. I'm thinking I need to understand it better. How am I gonna develop those protocols? The IRB went through the U of A side, it went through the banner side, and basically that gave me permission to do whatever study I needed to do, right? And so I brought in cardiology, I brought in radiology, I mean, I brought in the community network, some of the community docs to try to get some of the, you know, the information out to them. And we just did, and, and we just established a lot of stuff very early on. We connected with small drug companies, with big drug companies. We built the clinical trials program. We got help in the infrastructure from Banner and U of A because the U of A research team headed up by Anna Valencia is amazing. So you can just, it's all centralized. So you go to them and you say, hey, look, we're going to bring in six drug trials. How are we going to do this? Oh, well, we've got nine coordinators. We can do this. And then there was a central research committee that was formed that because the companies, once they start knowing that you could do it, the number of trials that were being created with molecules that we knew as well as stuff we never couldn't even pronounce, that was coming in too. So we had a central committee between Phoenix and Tucson to vet the trials, right? I mean, I'm new. Johnny knows. I, you know, I, I've only, I'm, I'm only at the in the U of A system about a year and a half, and so for me, it's U of A. I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna get. It's not just gonna be Phoenix. I'm gonna get Tucson too, and that way we really got power. We have two campuses, an hour and a half across. Think of the pool of patients, and 
So this whole thing started to, to grow very quickly. It, it really went pretty fast. And I worked seven days a week. I made rounds in every single ICU I created seven days a week. I knew what was happening with every single patient. Now, the doctors I was working with probably couldn't stand me, right? Because I'm asking for all these, no, we need details. We need to know what marker they have, measure this in their blood, because we didn't know how to treat them. We didn't know. So the first 30 patients that we treated, we actually tried to put together and publish because we thought it was so interesting to describe them and to describe how they were treated with a brand new protocol that nobody had done. And we couldn't get the paper published. So Marilyn, I really appreciate and, and glad we gave you that extended period of time to describe the scope of this pandemic. You know, when we call it a pandemic, it really extends uh, far beyond institutional boundaries, across state boundaries, across departmental boundaries. Um, what I really enjoyed was your pride that you were showing not only in the your own work, but in your colleagues' work and the supportive staff work. Um, and really where I want to take this next question is into the concept of leadership. You know, many of us get into research or into biomedicine, whether it's research or in healthcare, because we're interested in biology and molecules. And we, we pick up leadership skills along the way. But we've also seen many movies and read many stories about uh, crisis uh, bringing out leadership or crisis evolving leadership uh, more strongly. That's often in the military type of stories. Can you, hopefully it's a story about one of our residents or one of our medical students who you just saw as like the shining beacon. So in just a minute or so, can you tell us like a sense of pride that you saw in one of our, our younger up and coming future leaders and just how it emerged um, from this crisis? Oh, this, I have such a good story. So I'm gonna really smile about this one because they all just matched in the programs of their choice. So early on, I reached out because I wanted the medical students to become involved. Um, there was outreach from the medical students themselves um, to become involved in some of the work we were doing. I felt like they would look back on their medical student careers and have a lot to say. That I had to turn it into a positive, positive direction. There had to be something that happened. And so um, there was a program that the medical students got hooked to that was run by one of my colleagues. And I, I saw it on a, an email and I wrote him back and said, I'll take any medical student who wants to work with us, any of them. I'll take more than one. I'll take them all. I, I have enough work for all of them. And three emerged. And I said, so that's at the point, remember I told you I wrote that whole IRB thing to let anything happen. And we're getting a lot of push from patients' families. We need to give them convalescent plasma. We know convalescent plasma cures people. Yes, just like hydrochloroquine did too. Oh yeah, sure. Tell me about it. I'm a diehard scientist. I want to see the data. I want the trial done robustly. This is what we need to know. We need to know the ins and outs of convalescent plasma in history of viral infections. I wanna know what's been done in MERS, Ebola. Give us the scoop. Well, they did. They did this incredible, incredible job. They researched back the entire history. Then they, then they wrote a piece, a pro and con piece about convalescent plasma. And they were 100% right, Johnny. 
100% that it wasn't going to work, probably. And subsequent to that, there were many trials done that basically said, very inconclusively, although there's now an NIH study to try to go at it again um, with, with, with actually looking at what's in the plasma, maybe that will show something. But they wrote an absolutely seminal piece about the use of use, the do's and don'ts potentially of convalescent plasma in patients with COVID-19. And it was published in Frontiers. It garnered a lot, a lot of feedback. And those three medical students, they have a lot to say for a great job. And I really, really had fun mentoring them. Definitely, I've been so proud to watch them, you know, just step up in this pandemic in, in, all, in all the different ways you can imagine research, also service learning. They've worked with the COVID innovation team for some of this 3D printing, these projects to develop pieces and face shields. And it's just been awesome to watch our, our future, future generation of physicians kind of come to the forefront. They've done so much too. I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about community service and, and the Navajo populations and Hispanic populations, but the residents also became involved. I mean, there's, there's a lot to tell about all the good that came out of COVID-19 for our, for our community. Yes. And, and the UME GME connection, like you mentioned, I mean, I would say we've probably delivered tons, tons of supplies to the Navajo Nation together with, with residents and med students and our amazing leaders like you and faculty. It's been, it's been pretty amazing to watch. You know, um, it's just an amazing conversation so far. We have to take a short break, Dr. Glassberg, and we'll be back in a few moments to continue the discussion. The Reimagined Medicine podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Dr. Johnny Lifshitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital and the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affair Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the Curriculum Committee and Associate Dean of Clinical and Competency-Based Education at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. She is a family physician practicing at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. So welcome back to the Reimagined Medicine podcast. We're talking about crisis leadership, innovating treatment protocols to battle COVID-19 with Dr. Marilyn Glassberg, uh, as we now have the opportunity to look backwards at the uh, the changes that were made to the healthcare system. What we've learned so far from Dr. Glassberg is we've got to search out the data. We got to get that information. We have to read what's available and we have to contribute to the literature. And we're excited to report that uh, Dr. Glassberg and her team recently published a article in the European Respiratory Journal about altered pulmonary blood volume distribution and how that can be a biomarker to predict outcomes from COVID-19. Please tell us how this started with a tweet. <laughs> um, it did, it started with a tweet. So I, um, my fellows have really taught me how to use Twitter. And I was trying to reach out in addition to those meetings that I talked about before between the pulmonary chiefs, there, there had to be a way to keep up with what people were thinking about the disease. And in a pretty rapid sequence, I needed to do that. And I found that was Twitter. Um, you know, observations were being posted, um, pieces of data from different intensive care units, uh, people's thoughts about how the patients, what the spectrum of patients were. 
And pretty quickly, I, I saw a picture of some lungs from a, a, a company that I had worked with. And I work in interstitial lung disease and rare disease. That's, that's where my home is. And uh, they had put a picture that they had made of the vascular problems of COVID. They use high resolution CT scans and, and uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence to be able to really um, cut these uh, scans computer generated, obviously, to very, very, very thin areas so that you can try to understand more than what the picture looks like on the CT scan. So everybody has a CT scan. It's got these really pretty pictures of lungs. But behind that is a lot of information. And we've known that. So it's absolutely a beautiful picture. It looks like something I would see in the Museum of Modern Art. And I, I look at it and I go, you know, I'm going to tweet back a direct message and maybe they'll be interested in working. And I had some ideas about what I wanted to do with this. Obviously, what I was thinking was, could I use this to help me understand which patients were going to do worse and which were going to do better? Because I knew a lot of them had clots. I knew a lot of them had something vascular going on. Could I use that tool? Long story short, they tweeted back, yes, let's set up a call. And from then came now a series of six projects, Johnny, that we've done. Um, including working with the um, pathology group at um, the Alzheimer's Institute that got this incredible grant to study COVID, uh, Dr. Beach. We've been doing work with him, with Mike Morris in radiology, phenomenal pulmonary radiologist, who we were able now to try to hook together when people now were, were asking us when they died, can we look back and figure that out from the scans? So what the paper showed was that we could use the scan to tell us who basically had the worst prognosis and we could relate it to the age of the patient. So we had a tool that then we could take to a trial that you look forward, a prospective trial to see if we could actually use it as an index. And that's what we're doing now. And I bet so that those studies were covered by that giant IRB you got approved early on so you could do it rapidly. So very well done. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and the, the paper's great. It's, it's garnered the lead editorial in this major journal. Um, and we, we, wanted to, we wanted to hit you know, big time when we did this study because it, it started out as over 7,000 scans in the Banner system. So thanks again to Banner. It's, it's pretty amazing. I enjoyed reading it. And I'm wondering if for our readers, you could just recap a little bit about your findings, just you know, what, we, what you found with, the, with your results and any recommendations that might have come of it or, or help guide us as we, as we navigate the patient care situation? The recommendations I think will be forthcoming once we have a prospective trial, Katie. But I think what we were able to show is that when you looked at these very, very ultra fine sections of these lungs and you were able to use, you know, really computer generated technology to amass large amounts of data, you were able to show that the level of the compromise in the, in the blood vessel system in the lungs told you which patients were gonna have the rockier course uh, when you looked back, right? It's a look back study. So you have the benefit of knowing what happens to them. But great studies are done when they can then predict what happens to people, right? So the great study needs to be done. The background study is finished. And we also showed then that the worse the, the vascular disease was in the vessels was in the older patients. And so we knew 
that we could provide some data about when people say, well, I'm 80 years old and I get COVID and I have what's called this BV5 index. That means I'm not gonna do really well. You would be able to hopefully in the future tell families, look, there's not much we can do because you have so much damage in the circulation of your lung that you'll never be able to get the, you know, you need oxygen, right? Because you don't store it. The lungs have to pull it from the air. You're not gonna be able to do that if you're all, you know, basically you have clots everywhere. So Marilyn, before we switch over to a topic that I know Katie is uh, chomping at the bit to ask about, um, I'm not a physician and I don't treat uh, COVID patients. Uh, early on in the pandemic, we learned as a public that it is a lung disease. Is that still true or is it really multi-organ, multi-system disease? It depends on the patient, right? Most of the patients have, do have lung disease, but we're finding a group that only have like GI disease. We have another group that seems to get pretty severe cardiac disease. We have another group that can get heart and lung and, and kidney disease. Right. It's and that's the part we don't understand yet. We don't we don't know why that happens. It is a, a disease we're still learning or actively learning about. But yeah. Johnny, the way we handled that was we created a, a post discharge COVID clinic from the very first discharge, where we now have over two thousand patients in the in the Phoenix system that Harvey Sue and um, Heather Prisabal uh, manage. Uh, looking and collecting at that data. We have another IRB for that to collect the data prospectively so that we can better understand what happens to those people, sense of taste, smell, memory, um, exercise tolerance, shortness of breath, like oxygen needs. We need to be able to follow them so that we're prepared for the next pandemic. That's a perfect segue. And you're right, Johnny, I am chomping at the bit because I wanted to circle back a little bit to some of the earlier, even pre-break uh, discussion that we started to have. And it has to do with that. We're learning as we go. I, I know as a primary care physician, I have certainly been adapting my, my patient education as we learn more about this virus. And I think that's what the scientific medical community is, right? I mean, we're, we're learning and we're adapting as, as, we, as we have some of this prospective Data. Can you can you talk about that a little bit, Marilyn, about how the community has come together and, and worked together and learned together uh, and, and some of the silver linings of the pandemic? Because there's not many. Um, well, well, for me, I think one of the, the silver linings is obviously having this by campus approach, but more importantly was the hooking together of the communities in the state um, health organizations to work with us at U of A. Um, I became involved in the state disaster committee early on where I met um, Lisa Valerial, Kara Christ, and others that clearly recognized how we had to have a plan for what we were going to do. Um, that included a lot of important banner folks, Patty Myers and others, that, that came up with a scoring system that we could use. It wasn't perfect, far from it. But at least it was some way where we knew we could get patients to facilities like ours that had extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, fancy term for ECMO, be able to get patients the fancy machines they would need to get the oxygen that they needed since it was a problem. But I, I think the, prob the thing we've learned most is what we have to do in the future. And I had the fortunate 
time to have a conversation with Dr. Fauci with a few other of the pulmonologists, part of the American College of Chest Physicians, where we talked about how are we gonna do this going forward? What are we gonna learn? And Dr. Fauci said, remember that we are the United States of America, but we don't operate that way. The states do what they want. We need state, local, uh, regional healthcare systems to integrate and function together. And I think what we're gonna see coming out of COVID-19 are, are some really improvements in those systems so that we can deliver the healthcare across the board, at least in a more standard way so that we don't have outlying groups that didn't even know that they were at risk for COVID, right? I mean, it, it really, the beginning was difficult. Now I think we've managed to do a lot of really wonderful education and the U of A, medical students, the residents, the faculty were all involved in those efforts in a huge way. So it's a silver lining. And I, I, I don't think it's going to go away. I think we, we've learned and we're going to implement. I sure share your optimism and, and hope that we have learned that and can continue that momentum, not just for our next pandemic, but just in general, because think of what we can do together. So that's, that's great insight. Marilyn, as we are wrapping up this episode, uh, one of the threads that I have taken from our conversation so far is the vast amount of information that's available, the networks of people that are working together and gathering this information. And I'm, I'm always putting myself in the position of our listeners who, who may not have um, who don't have as much pulmonary expertise as you do. Where would you suggest that they go for qualified information? Do they go to the CDC? Do they go to our state website? What, what are, are, in all of your distilling of this information, what are a couple locations that you can say have high quality, up-to-date information about COVID and the COVID response? I, I think probably the best at the, and still remains the best is the CDC. There, um, that, there are also, um, believe it or not, some of the newspaper sites, the New York Times, the Washington Post, have been very good throughout the surges about posting real world data. And I would go to sources that have data, real data. Um, and certainly the CDC posted maps, gave us the regions in Arizona where we knew there were hot spots. I mean, there, there was a lot of information we were getting from there. I didn't use the state sites as much as I did the, the maps that I would get every day and most of it on my phone so that I could look at it quickly. But um, I would just, I would search out uh, reputable sources um, and use them very, very carefully because there's so much on the internet that is not correct. They'll give you every kind of treatment you could imagine and it's never been tested. Um, and you have to be really cautious, you know, in the beginning we had people eating fish food, right, and, and dying, and because the internet, you know, there would be things on the internet that said that, or, or someone in the government had said it, but look for the data, look for the published studies that are in journals that are peer-reviewed, not just press releases. A lot of the information, unfortunately, in this pandemic has not been really verified. 
Uh, that that's ideal information, and it fits with the ethos and with the values of the College of Medicine, which is to train physicians and healthcare providers to be lifelong learners, to be good consumers of information, and good leaders in disseminating that information. So, thank you for for discussing that. Absolutely. And in general, just thank you so much, Dr. Glasper, for taking time with us today and sharing your work with us and your insight, your expertise. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. If things thank come you. down, we'll have you back again to talk more in depth. Yes, we yeah. have more data. Yes, I, I hope that the, the post-COVID follow-up that anybody that has COVID will join us in this um, clinic where we're, we're really trying to make sure we get all the information and be able to follow the patients so that we have good outcomes. Wonderful, excellent. thank you again. Thank you. Johnny, that was an excellent uh, episode. I enjoyed meeting with Dr. Glassberg so much and many of, her, many of her answers and comments resonated with me. But one thing I would say for sure is I was completely captivated by her enthusiasm. She certainly has landed in the career she is absolutely meant for and passionate about. She's a very experienced researcher, but how she approaches research and data and the lifelong learner that she is was so contagious. I mean, she was enthusiastic and many of us are kind of feeling the COVID exhaustion and she just seems to be making nothing but the best of it from a research standpoint and, and getting as much data and as much collaboration as she possibly can. I was just completely amazed by her enthusiasm. Without a doubt, I was transfixed by her energy as well. Um, it's interesting to contrast Marilyn Glassberg as our guest, as well as Haig and Tablian, who is at the start of his career with that much energy, and perhaps he has that same trajectory, but to maintain that enthusiasm um, is an enviable quality. And without a doubt, she epitomizes the fact that crisis can bring out strength and leadership. What I was most amazed about is that with all the great things she did in such a short period of time, she really could have um, presented herself very differently. But I picked up on her humility, on her ability to look not only backwards at other virus situations, but also to look to Seattle and New York and to Twitter and all these other sources and bring the community together. And so without a doubt, she epitomizes that concept of standing on the shoulders of giants and all those that are around her so she can see forward and see more. Yes, her humility and appreciation of colleagues and the work that she's doing with others, as well as her optimistic attitude about how we can, we've grown from this pandemic. It's been hard, but we've learned and we've been able to learn how to even collaborate better together as a community, within our community, across campuses, within our states, cross states. And hopefully we can take some of this exciting momentum and increased collaborative skills forward uh, beyond the pandemic. It was such an enjoyable discussion. Yeah, this particular podcast feels like a bit of an adrenaline shot to get us out of our COVID funk. And so, Katie, I really look forward to the next time we get together when we uh, get together about another exciting discussion that's changing medicine. And for now, lift shits out like a well-functioning GI system. Bright out like a good night's sleep. The Reimagine Medicine podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifshitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix.
Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine. The song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CC BYSA 4.0 license. <laughs>